All right, hello everyone. I'm Brendan, as many of you I'm sure all know already. Thanks for being able to come out for today to be able to learn in our next uh, great question on the Baptist Catechism. For our Catechism question, it's going to be, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? And the answer is, in the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all of, all of our sins, which we rather encouraged to ask because of this grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others i will say for myself as i was studying into this uh, topic on confessing my sins it was a definitely very humbling experience i know back then i had a very uh, simplistic uh, i guess you would say understanding of it um but to be able to see how there's a lot more to it than just simply or i'm sorry for doing a b and c x y and z that there's actually a lot more depth into and how it even relates to even how we live out our lives. So hope you guys will be also blessed just as much as I was blessed on being able to go more in depth on learning on this topic. Living in America, generally speaking, is a blessing. There are food markets where we can buy whatever we want or need. We don't need to be like a bird that wakes up every day wondering where they would be able to find their food. We're able to wake up and see that we have an empty refrigerator and immediately we say, well, looks like we're low on groceries. It's time to go to the store. Or how about how we have the ability to practice the religion we believe? This, indeed, is a wonderful blessing that a lot of us would take for granted, right? What about being able to have so much entertainment that we could indulge in that, leaving us with nothing else to do for weeks on end if we were left to our own decisions? How about wanting to buy whatever you want? If you want a better car, you just go buy one. Or how about if you want a bigger TV, you just go buy one. Really, there's nothing that you may want that is not achievable to get in America. There are many more benefits that we have in America, but with many blessings that are available, there are, of course, a lot of curses that come along with it. If a person desires any of these things, yet comes to realization that they don't have the money to get what they desire, what do they do? Well... They can either wait and save up money for it, which is really the case since we live in a day and age that is very impatient, myself included. So if that's the case, then what is the solution to this dilemma? Well, it's an easy and simple fix to our problem. I'm sure that many of you have guessed what it is. The wonderful solution to many people is to go in debt. Going in debt is indeed a wonderful idea. That is seen by many because it allows you to have a lot of money that you normally don't have, which means you can go and get those things right now and find satisfaction in those things you desire. Yet, as Jesus Christ would say in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, in saying, when someone has been given much, much will be required. What Jesus is showing here is that when we're entrusted with a lump sum of money, we are called to use it with wisdom, bringing glory to God with it. Unfortunately, it is all too much apparent that this often is not the case. Many people who get loans or credit cards often fall deeper and deeper into debt. This will lead to unfortunate situations like foreclosure, bankruptcy, divorces, or even homelessness. Not being a good steward of your money can lead to very devastating consequences. Yet, as bad as our debt may get, there is a debt that many of us rarely even think about. This is the debt that we accrue by our sins. Yeah. 
As Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, by saying, And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our, de- our debtors. As we could see, Jesus uses the specific word of debt to describe relationship of our sin towards a holy God. This is not accidental because every time we sin, we do store up God's wrath against us. There is a saying that many of us, I'm sure at one point have said, when we have got something free. The saying is, there is nothing free in life. This is true, but a lot of us fail to recognize that this is also true for our sin. That every time we sin, whether knowing or not, there is a debt that is constantly being tallied up by God. This is quite a terrifying thought, especially since God does not command our obedience in just what we do, but in our heart, soul, and mind. Every part of our very being is commanded to total obedience to who God is. That is what we're supposed to be, because he has said, be holy as I am holy. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus Christ even makes mention of that very same standard. I do go back. That's actually Sermon on the Mount, not the Mount of Transfiguration. He mentions that very same standard that we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. This would mean that every second we fail to be perfect, that is another debt that is being tallied up where there is no possibility to be maxed out on your debt. As God is infinite in his being, so does our debt go to infinite as well. This God who we add to our debt daily keeps an accurate record and will not allow not one single sin of ours to not be required and be paid for. There is a day coming that God will call everyone to his great white throne of judgment and have them pay him what he is owed. Remember, just like in our society, the greater the debt a person goes into, the greater the consequences that will follow. How much more is this the case with God that the greater the debt that we gain, the worse our punishment will be in the lake of fire, where there will be no end to the suffering one will endure. Do not be led astray. The suffering that is destined for those that can't pay for their debt will not be given by the devil himself, since he too is bound up in chains of suffering, just like you. But your suffering will come from the very wrath of God himself. Yes, God is the one who will for all eternity lay out his wrath without restraint to the wicked for all eternity. So that suffering that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels, where he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, is because of God who pours out his wrath on them. Let this settle in your minds, that Jesus Christ, who was about to be betrayed, prayed in the garden for the cup to pass from him. This cup Jesus prayed not to drink was not the suffering from Roman soldiers or even the cross, but the wrath of God that Jesus would be needing to take on behalf of those who he died for. Now take special note that after Jesus prayed for the third time to ask for this cup to pass, the father gave him his answer. That is his will for Jesus to drink the cup. And immediately what does the scripture say? It says this, then his sweat became like great drops of blood. This is no exaggeration or symbolic language that is being talked about here. 
But actually, this is something that is called hematohydrosis, where it is a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress, according to Google. Now, to let it come home to us, I'm sure a lot of us have gone through traumatic events in our lives that have caused us severe emotional or physical stress that may even affect us to this day. That being said, how many of us were so stressed out so badly that instead of sweating water that stinks, we actually sweated blood? Yeah. So how deep do you think Jesus Christ was going through at this moment? Here's my point. Either Jesus was over-exaggerating the wrath of God, being dramatic, as we would call it, or Jesus Christ knew exactly how terrifying experiencing the wrath of God is. And we are the ones that have absolutely no idea how terrifying it is to stand in front of a holy, wrathful God on Judgment Day. This is, of course, the latter. For unlike us, Jesus Christ experienced eternal fellowship with the Father, So Jesus knew exactly what he was going to be dealing with. Now, there are many people, there may be people who are thinking that this news I'm talking about is really nothing to worry about. Since a person would tend to look at their circumstances and come to find that all things are peaceful. So how can we possibly be in any danger when there's clearly no danger in sight? Well, let me give an example of how foolish this comfort is for anyone that seeks comfort in it. There are times in the Bible that records devastating, the devastating outcomes that God has given. But we'll focus on one in particular. This would be the events of Noah's flood, where Noah prepared an ark for a universal flood that was to come. The ungodly people of Noah's day mocked him and also looked at their circumstances, saying, There is no way possible that a universal flood could ever happen. Oh, what a tragedy. For those many who perish, that when the ark door is closed, the floods burst in suddenly from above as well as below, instantly killing all of mankind except of Noah and his family. Even Jesus Christ used this very example of how his judgment that he will bring will be just like Noah's flood. That's why he warns his disciples that he will come as a thief in the night. Because he will indeed come without warning. And all those who are not ready will be fallen to sudden destruction. As we have come to realize how terrifying of a debt our sins bring us, nothing should shock us to pay attention more than constantly increasing, than a constantly increasing debt against the holy God. Some may be thinking... Even though our sins may be gaining debts, I would just go ahead and just pay off my debt. Some may even be content to at least be able to knock off just a couple dollars, maybe a 20 or so. Well, if that's the case, how can a person accomplish such a task as this? Some may say, I'll just go ahead and try to be a better person, right? Well, as great as that may sound. What does that gain you since you have failed to realize that in order to make a dent in your debt, you must seek and actually live out to be perfect as God is perfect? Just like at our jobs that many of us may have or some maybe will have someday. 
right? Just like at our jobs, if we do not work at the standards our boss requires, then we will be fired. This is just as true in God's case, but his standards of employment is to not fail at perfection for one moment. Otherwise, we'll be instantly fired and then gain penalties as long as we keep failing to do what God requires us to do. Others may say, well, my teacher in whom I put my trust in has told me that God will cancel our debts if we simply confess our sins to God because God is indeed a forgiving God. Ah, I see. So you say, well, let me ask you this. If there was to be a murderer who indeed did kill three victims and ended up in court for his trial and was found guilty of three counts of murder and the offender pleads his honest sorrows with many, many tears over the crimes he committed. On the hearing of this, the judge is going to pronounce his sentence and says, Sir, you indeed have committed these horrible crimes against society. But because I am indeed a faithful and forgiving judge, I will forgive you of your crimes, so you are free to go. What would we think of a judge like that? We would think he's an unjust and wicked judge to not give justice where justice is due. How much more is God, who the scriptures say that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Giving justice to the guilty is exactly what he intends to do, for he will require a payment for every sin. There will be no sin that will not go unpunished. Well, there is no hope in ourselves, nor is there any hope in the wisdom of any man today. Who can we go to that is able to pay off such a mighty debt? There is, thanks to, be, thanks to God, a hope that we have today. It is hope in the one and only Savior of those who trust in him as their Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Indeed, if all people are disqualified from paying for their sins by failing to be perfect, Jesus Christ then is the only one we have any hope to escape such a tragedy that our debt has brought to us. This is all possible because Jesus Christ, who is fully God, came in a human body around 2,000 years ago and lived among us. During Jesus' life, he perfectly kept all of God's laws. Whether it was the devil or the schemes of man, none could cause Jesus to not be fully devoted to showing his father that he loved him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. In keeping his perfect obedience, Jesus Christ preached the good news for all mankind to hear that in him alone there is peace with God. That he has come to take on the wrath of God for, those, for all those who will put their hope in him. And that by offering his body as a living sacrifice, he has taken all the wrath of God for his sheep. In doing so, he has given his sheep his perfect obedience so that he could bring them into the blessed communion of being able to have fellowship with God all because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. Yes, indeed, it is hope alone in the one true Jesus Christ that there is hope for all those who believe in him. With such amazing hope, let us rejoice further in looking at what a great God and Savior he is. As I've spoken earlier, 
God keeps an accurate account of all of mankind's sins and mankind forever increases their debt. Jesus Christ would pay for that debt fully and finally. This means that God is able to forgive our sins because there has been a payment that has been made on the believer's behalf. In forgiving the sinner of their debt, they are free from all debt that they have gathered, not just from this point in time in their life, but from the beginning and end of our existence in these earthly bodies. Every last penny has been fully paid by the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. Oh, how wonderful indeed this is. This should bring peace to all Christians because God has not just forgiven our sins, but he has also forgotten our sins since he has cast them away from us as far as the east is from the west. Just think back to when we have ourselves wronged someone to where they could never trust us. But one day, they have told us the comforting words in saying, I have forgiven you of the wrong you have done against me. This was a great joy for us to hear such beautiful words being spoken to us. Be that as it may, though, we may have been forgiven. We have a tendency to not forget and thus have a bit of caution around those who have wronged us. This is not the case with God because he does not remember our sins. So when he says to us through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, he fully brings us to the comforting fellowship that Jesus Christ also had with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. Even though we may go and sin for the 500th time on that same sin and confess to our God and saying, well, why bother doing it for the 500th time? I know I'm getting tired of going to the Lord for this. So I'm sure he is probably getting tired about this. Maybe he's got a little more patience than me. But I think it's about time that I just call it quits. I would just want to encourage us all to remember that God indeed is holy. And the term holy means to be set apart. So a moment that we try to say that God is like us, that he acts like us, we forget that God is nothing like us. I was actually told and learned from someone that asked the question, who is God more like, a worm of the earth or a majestic archangel? I know for myself, I was like, well, obviously it has to be an archangel, right? Mighty creature. But his answer was neither. For neither an angel, neither a worm are able to show anywhere close to who God actually is. For as some of us may know, there's only one attribute that is repeated three times to the third degree, and that is his holiness. So when we understand what holy means, and we understand in Isaiah 6, that the angels spoke out singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of his glory, right? That's saying that God is not just set apart from the things of the creation, not that he's set apart from being set apart, but that he's set apart from being set apart from being set apart. He is to the greatest degree of being set apart. Just to give a kind of good emphasis here, if I was to say for myself, this is the case. But for example, if I was to say, you know, to Nairobi, and I said, 
Nairobi, who's the husband, he, you know, he's husband, married to his wife. And I said, Nairobi is the husband of husbands. What am I saying there? Now, he's not just a husband, but he's the greatest of all husbands. That's why I make emphasis there. So when we say about God, how he's holy, 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 we're saying that he is to even the third degree, the most holy and set apart of all things. So even though we may feel the Lord doesn't want to hear this, I don't even want to hear this. I don't even want to visit confessing my sins over this matter. Just remember, God calls us and encourages us to come to him to recognize that even though we may be weak, in recognizing our weakness, that is only then when we are truly strong. With this understanding of forgiveness of sins, why is it then that we are instructed to confess our sins? If all of our sins have already been forgiven in Jesus Christ? This is a good question. One thing that we must keep in mind is that we don't confess our sins to then have them be forgiven by God. All of this was done by faith when we believed in Jesus Christ, that he fully died for our sins and by him alone that we have peace with God. The reason, one of the reasons that we still confess our sins is to remind us of our weaknesses that we still have today. A person who is aware of their sins that they still do and confesses them to God is a person who is mighty in God. For as Paul would say, that he would boast rather in his weaknesses. And in so doing, God's grace is perfected in him. This is very counterintuitive to how our society teaches us to live. That apparently, according to them, it is by showing you have no faults, that you are strong and have no weaknesses. This is not the case with being a Christian. The ones who are the most strong are the ones who realize how weak that they are and how often they sin and how much they fail at loving God in the way that they desire to love him. The next important thing of why we confess our sins is because just as how it keeps us realizing how wretched we are, it also allows us to see how glorious God is. Paul Washer once said in one of his sermons that in preaching the gospel to people and showing them the depths of their own sin, bringing them to further and further into the darkness of their own hearts, that is exactly where the light of Jesus Christ will shine the brightest. If we go outside during a sunny day, we can't see any stars in the skies. But when we go to the height of a mountain during the darkest time of the night, only then you can see how many bright and shining stars are in the sky. This is the very critical reason why we need to seek God's strength to confess our sins daily to him. Because it is only then that we could see how wonderful and blessed Jesus Christ actually is. By all means, it's no wonder that in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says as one of his Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who actually do have not just mourning in general, the fact that you lost your job or that you're sick, you know, those are indeed things to be mourning over. He's talking mourning over our own sins. That it grieves us. That when you actually allow your sins to grieve you as they are supposed to, 
because it is a very serious issue, it is only then that you can actually receive true comfort from God. That's only through Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, we're going to switch gears from knowing why we should confess our sins to God to knowing what should be our attitude of confessing our sins. The first thing we should do is confess our sins with an honest self-examination. What I mean by this is that a lot of us have been on that road where we start to look into our own dark hearts and the deeper and darker our hearts become, the more we get anxious or terrified on seeing how wicked we actually are. Others may not see how bad of a person we are, but we can see it. And unfortunately, oftentimes, it makes us uncomfortable, so much so that we try not to think about that part of ourselves and ignore it. This is not wise, for it is only by realizing how bad we are that is where we cannot just find peace with God, but also joy. So in keeping away from those dark places of our hearts, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice by avoiding to do those things that will help us most. The next thing we need to do when we confess our sins is to be sincere. We are supposed to not sugarcoat our sins. This happens so often when we confess our wrongs to each other that we often downplay how bad our actions were just to keep some sense of dignity in the eyes of those we talk to. Just remember that God sees how bad our sin actually is, no matter how much we try to hide them. God desires honesty from us. Let us go to him and be honest with how utterly depraved we are today. Keep this word of encouragement that God has spoken to his children. That is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our loved ones may leave us when they actually see how evil we are, but don't fall for the trap on treating God like those people you have met. He is so much greater and better than anyone you have met. On the next note, we need to confess our sins to God in a begging manner. What I mean by this is that when we confess our sins, we should not have a casual manner of confessing our sins, but should be coming to the Lord with a devastating attitude. Think about how when a husband has been unfaithful to his wife and in a moment of weakness, he cheats on her and sleeps with someone else who he ought not to sleep with and has come to the realization of how much a major offense he has done to his wife, who he realized he loves way more than anyone else. What does such a man do when he talks to his wife, who he has offended? Does he go to her in a casual way? Say, hey, honey, I understand you're offended, but hey, I'm sorry. Get over it. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again, all right? My bad. Or does he go to her with tears running down his eyes, begging and pleading with his wife to forgive him? even going so far as to make endless promises because at that moment, nothing matters to him more than to be able to be accepted back into the comforting arms of his wife. How much more should this be the case with God since all of our sins are, as R.C. Sproul would say, 
is cosmic treason against God. It should drive our hearts to mourning when we sin against our God who has sent his son to die for our sins. It is by coming in a devastating attitude that we come that much closer to God into the comforting arms of his fellowship. Now, this next one may come as a surprise to some to hear, but we should come to confess our sins to God in an argumentative manner. Now, before you start to think that I've got off the deep end talking on some nonsense, hear me out. Think back to the saints of the Old Testament who went through some serious, troubling times. We will use Job, for example. He went through such a horrible trial in his life that was so bad that he said it would have been better for him to have never been born. Now, with Job being called by God himself, a righteous man in whom he finds no fault, what was the attitude of Job when he was going through his trial? Was Job thinking about what a lot about what a lot of us Calvinists would say today? God is sovereign. I shall not fear what this trial may do to me. I stand joyful through this time and rejoice in who my God is. Nope. Job would constantly be questioning God on why he is going through this. He had no idea and he wanted God to give him an answer for why he is going through such suffering. God finally appeared to Job, but instead of answering Job's many questions, he asked Job many questions in return, thus leading Job to being humble and realizing that he is but a mere man. The point, as we could see, is that Job was not called righteous by God because he did not fear anything, but rather he was honest in what he was going through. Even Jesus Christ, as we have talked about, prayed for him not to drink the cup, but sweat drops of blood, not because he was joyful and happy, but because he was, as the scriptures would say, he was in agony. Now, just to be clear, we may, able, we may be honest with God in our suffering. We're allowed to do so. But this does not give us the right to grumble and complain. The way we avoid this is to do what the Bible says, which is not to be anxious for anything, but through prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be known to God. Yes, we may say, Lord, I don't know why I'm still struggling with this sin, but I know you're working all things together for my good. The last attitude that we should have in confessing our sins to God is that we should be specific in our prayers. Being specific in our prayers rather than just saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins I've done today, puts actual teeth to knowing what exactly we did wrong. This would cause us to feel more closer to godly sorrow when we did specify the offense that we have committed against God recently. This was even the case in my marriage several times. For example, there was a time I told my wife, Savannah, I'm sorry for not being a good husband. She asked in return, 
Sorry for what, though, specifically? I responded by saying, I don't know for what exactly, but I know I've messed up somewhere as a husband. She was not satisfied with a general apology. She wanted a specific one, and rightfully so. This is due to the fact that when I would apologize specifically for, in many cases, not being slow to speak and slow to become angry, and I did that same offense the next day to Savannah, my heart would be extra grieved since I just apologized for doing that offense. When I say I failed as a husband somewhere, there is no specific guilt that I've experienced, but rather a general guilt, which does not usually lead to a deep repentance unto, God's, unto God himself. If this is the case in my marriage and in some of our marriages, many of our marriages, how much more does God as well desire for us to be specific in listing our sins? Because when we do commit those specific sins, we have godly sorrow, which is what God desires for us to experience in its appropriate season in our life. These attitudes will make our confession of God and prayers to him much richer and joyful. Let us be sure to keep our minds on these precious truths. With all that being said, we're now going to be coming to our final point of what we have come to learn today, which is how does this affect us in regards to forgiving our neighbor's sins or trespasses against us? With this important topic, we'll be going over two parables that Jesus spoke on. The first one we'll be going over it's going to be found in Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 35. And I'll go ahead and read that for us. And I'll give us some time to be able to get there ourselves. And just for you guys know, the next one we're going to hop into after this one is going to be found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Just a heads up on that. All right. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master, as he, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I'll pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debts. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called them, said to him, 
you wicked servants. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you from his heart, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So we see one big aspect here for those of us that may not know, you know, the currencies um, that was being spoken in this parable, kind of our modern terms. What the original servant owed was essentially a billion dollars that he could not pay back. And it was due today. Right. And when he went to his fellow servant, his fellow servant maybe owed him maybe two hundred dollars. So, like I said, just to kind of keep in mind the length of the hypocrisy. So in showing and reading this text. One important aspect that it shows us on how we're supposed to forgive our neighbor's sins is that first off, we're supposed to forgive others as God has forgiven us. But as we see here, oftentimes this servant reflects a lot of us in our lives that we oftentimes either don't forgive as we should, when we should, or we never do. Now, granted, like I said, all this that I'm saying is only possibly done by the grace that God gives us and his strength to be able to forgive our neighbors. But God uses these means to bring about that grace to allow us to be able to forgive as God himself has forgiven us. That being said, the first reason we often have a struggle with forgiving our neighbors of their sins when we should have forgiven it is because we often forget the debt that we had canceled. So when we look at our neighbor's offenses, And granted, I'm not saying that their offenses are not small matters. They may be serious matters. But when we say, yeah, I'll forgive them. But that one thing they did, they really, they really did me dirty. They really messed me over. Yet we're playing the hypocrite because what we have done to the Lord or even to other people, we have done plenty more. And so, of course, we are called to remember that the Lord's forgiven us of that greater debt. And that is the often driving force which allows a Christian to be able to forgive their neighbors many times over. Now, I will use an example for our case today. I have this MacBook, which cost me about $900. And say somebody comes over to my house and drops it and breaks it. They say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, man. It was an accident. I say, oh, it's okay, man. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. But hey, you're going to need to pay me uh, $800 because I'm out of a MacBook. Is that true forgiveness there? Some of us would say it is. Yeah, I don't hold any grudges against you, but you need to make me whole. Well, again, imagine if the Lord did that for us. Brendan, I'll forgive you of your sins that you've done against your wife today, but I'm going to go ahead and need you to pay at least for two of your other sins just to kind of make up for the loss. But as I already spoke about earlier, the Lord asked anything from us. We want to be able to do it because really the minimum standards that he asked of us is to be perfect. So again, since he freely and fully forgives us of our offenses, we should do that for our neighbors too. Sometimes that does mean that we do need to eat up, in my case, the $800 loss for a MacBook. Because like I said, I've definitely accrued a bigger debt than $800 to the Lord. And I definitely don't want him to make me gain my account. Now on that same example, say I do actually end up just saying, you know, forget it. Don't worry about it. 
Don't worry about paying back for the Mac. It's all good. But in my own heart, I actually grow bitter, realizing like, man, because that MacBook, I can't actually do my work. Because I don't have that MacBook, I can't be able to actually go on my work calls. I can't use it for my kids, you know, study lessons, my own, you know, homeschooling. And because of that, we're out $800 and I can't even get it back. If only my neighbor hadn't done that. The issue there is the fact that you haven't forgiven, as Jesus specifies, you haven't forgiven from the heart. And that's critical. Because even if we do let things go, but we have that bitterness of heart, that does cause a lot of damage. So much so that in Hebrews 13, it says, be aware, do not let any root of bitterness grow in your hearts departing many from the faith. It is no coincidence that the author there actually describes bitterness as a root. We'll use even like weeds, for example, as many of us I'm sure have had in our gardens, whether being a homeowner or living at our parents' place. When a weed is small, it is easy to be able to take out because the root is very small. It doesn't grow much. But the longer we leave the weed in the ground, the deeper the root grows deeper in. And when we try to get it out, it is extremely difficult. Sometimes we actually just break off just the top part and the stem's left and we say, good enough, you know, that, that'll do. But that root is still growing even though you may have pulled off the top part. So being able to have this bitterness is detrimental to our own Christian walk and actually will hurt us a lot more than it will hurt our neighbor. So let us remember that it's not just enough to actually let go of a wrong that our neighbor has done but to honestly be able to forgive from the heart. Because like I said, that is the difference between your own life and death. For as Jesus would say, if you do not forgive your neighbor from your heart, neither will my father forgive you of your sins. So trust and believe. There's a lot more at stake than just a mere $800. So let us uh, be able to use that as a sobering thought for many of us. The next passage we're going to be reading through is Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. I'll start there. It says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven of the greater debt. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not stopped to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did anoint. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the big thing to be able to know how confessing our sins to God is directly related to how we forgive our neighbor's sins is we see this clear example of how the woman actually knew not just that she was a general sinner, but I'm sure she could list you her many sins that she has done just in that day or even her whole life. That's why when she saw Jesus, who was God, but was also his neighbor, she had such great joy and adoration for him and love. And not to mention Simon, who was a Pharisee, so he wasn't ignorant of God's laws and statutes and commands. You can see his attitude. Maybe he doesn't say it expressly, but you can see in how he treats Jesus by how he compares the two, that he actually doesn't think he's that much of a sinner. He says, he may say, well, yeah, I have lied. I have done this wrong or that wrong, but you know, I'm not the worst there is. Not the case for the woman. And because she recognized how much of a sinner she was, she was able to love her neighbor so very much, even more so to be able to even forgive her neighbor of the offense they did. Because she's like, hey, yo, I understand you did this wrong to me, but trust and believe, I, you got nothing on me. I've got a lot more wrongs that I've done. Even Jesus taught on that, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you look at the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you fail to acknowledge the log in your own eye. And thus you'll be walking in hypocrisy. Now, keep in mind on verse 47 is kind of the key point here. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for, or as I would say, because she loved much. If you want to often know why oftentimes you have an issue with joy in your own walk, whether it's to the Lord or even to your neighbors? Have you actually done a thorough itinerary account of your own sins that you have done? Because oftentimes when you actually do see, like I said before earlier, how deep and dark your heart is, that is actually only when you can actually see how glorious and good and faithful God is. And that's what actually is the driving force behind you being able to forgive your neighbors of their sins. So with that being said, let's go ahead and review on some of the thoughts that we've talked about on forgiving our sins. First one, are we able to, we are able to forgive our neighbors by the grace of God. This is not something that we could do by any stretch of the imagination, by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. My neighbor has really offended me, but I just got to try hard to forgive. No, remember, the reason why we all became Christians is because we realized that we cannot do what God wants us to do even on our best day. And that game hasn't changed when we became a Christian. 
we're still supposed to be called to live in weakness and constantly seeking God in his strength. And it's through that strength that we're able to forgive our neighbors against us. Should we forgive our neighbors freely? Yes, we should. How about forgiving from the heart? Not allowing a root of bitterness to grow inside of us. Indeed, we should. What about forgiving completely? Just, or, you know, say, okay, I'll forgive you 90%, but just let me keep just 5% just to make myself feel justified, justified in my own anger, right? No, call it to forgive completely as the Lord has completely forgiven us. How soon should we seek to offer out our forgiveness to others? Now, there are some who may say, when your neighbor has offended you, such as, we'll just say, example, you know, I cheat on my wife. And then immediately, some people say that Savannah should immediately, as soon as she finds out that I have been unfaithful to her and I haven't been remorseful over my sin, that she's supposed to unilaterally or essentially saying automatically forgive me and say, I forgive you of your wrong that you've done against me. I wouldn't believe that's the case. I would believe that as Jesus would say in Luke chapter 17, verses three through four, he would say, again, asking about the topic of forgiveness, right? He says, how many times should I forgive my neighbors? And Jesus says, if your neighbor has sinned against you, or if your brother has sinned against you, tell them their faults. And here it is. And if they say, I repent, then you forgive them. Even if they offend you seven times in one day, and on the seventh time said, I repent, you must forgive. So as I would say that, yes, when they show genuine repentance and uh, genuine guilt for what they do and they do desire to seek to do better, then we should be ready immediately to forgive. So we shouldn't be necessarily ready to give out forgiveness towards uh, our neighbor who doesn't feel sorry, but we should be always ready to be able to give it as soon as possible. That's why I would say is be the, ba- the, the balance between not falling to bitterness, but also being able to be able to forgive when your neighbor, by God's grace, does repent of their wrong. How long should we keep forgiving our neighbors of their sins? Well, as many times as the Lord has forgiven you of your sins. Do we need to forgive someone in person or do we actually even need to tell them? I would say generally, generally speaking, it's good practice to tell our neighbors if we have wronged them um, to apologize for the wrong that we have done against them. Or even if that we are supposed to forgive them and tell them in person to forgive them. Of course, there are general times. Obviously, use your own wisdom as discretion. There is someone, you know, a person that's like very dangerous, that it's not wise to go alone to this individual to be able to, you know, to give forgiveness then probably it's better just to give it up to the Lord or maybe bring someone else to be there with you to be able to be a mediator and to keep the peace, right? And last one, what happens if we don't forgive our neighbors of their sins? Well, we will have the Lord to treat us as we treat our neighbors. If you do not forgive your neighbors of their sins, as grievous as it may be, and you do not forgive it and let it go from the heart, then neither will the Lord forgive you of your sins, and you will have to pay the debt, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 18, where the person who did not give forgiveness 
was sent back into prison and had to pay the debt he was actually originally forgiven of. Granted, I'm not saying that we could lose our salvation, but I'm saying that if you have a really hard time forgiving your neighbors of your sins, I'm not necessarily saying you lost your salvation. You can't lose something you never had first off. But I would say you've lost your assurance of your salvation. If you say you believe that you're saved, well, prove it by your actions. But at this point in time, your actions are not testifying to that. So that's what I would say on that matter. So in summary, our sin is a debt. It's a debt that has no limits. There is no cutting out point that says, okay, well, you maxed out your debt. So you can't get any more debt. As God is infinite, so is our debt. Could go to infinite degrees. There is no limit to how much we could sin against God in our earthly lives. Are we able to pay this debt? Well, if you're able to live perfectly as soon as you're born to even this moment in time until the very point of your death, you are qualified and still able to pay off this debt. Although, granted, you wouldn't have any debt at that point, so there really would be no point in doing that, right? So, no, we can't pay our debt because we all fall short of God's standard, right? Now, does God forgive of us our debts? Yes, he does. He forgives it fully, completely, and he even forgets it. So even though we may remember that this is a 500th time to come to the Lord and confessing our sins, the Lord sees us as he sees his own son or even as the prodigal son. Even though the son was really guilt-ridden for what he has done against his father, his father rejoiced to be able to have him to be reconciled with him through confession and prayer. What should be our attitude when praying for the forgiveness of our sins? We should be honest. We should be truthful. We should be argumentative in the sense that we should not pretend. Now, granted, if you're going through a trial and you genuinely are as Jesus was in the boat where there was a storm and everyone else was freaking out, but Jesus was sound asleep. Even Peter was also the same case. The day before he thought he was going to die, he was sound asleep too, right? So if you genuinely do have peace in the times of your trial, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying it's wrong when we actually don't have honest peace in this trial, but we pretend as if we do. Remember, Jesus, for example, in Matthew 23, in addressing the Pharisees and religious leaders, one word he often used to describe them every time was hypocrites. Because they look good and honest and nice on the outside, but it's full of dead bones on the inside. God doesn't appreciate our hypocrisy. He appreciates honesty, whatever that may be. How should we be thankful in praising his holy name and character? By being able to recognize that we ourselves are able to be forgiven of such a great debt that this gives us the great privilege and honor to be able to not just know that we are forgiven of this account, but the fact that God is not obligated to give us this forgiveness because he doesn't give it to everybody, but he gives it to those whom he wills. So when we realize how bad we are, and yet despite how sinful we come to find ourselves to be, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in Jesus Christ. Should we forgive our neighbor's sins? And in what circumstances should we forgive our neighbor's sins? Well, oftentimes we should be able to forgive our neighbor's sins for whatever they do, unless 
the sins that they have done against us is a greater debt than we have done to God. Then sure. But as we've already talked about, I'm sure pretty clearly, there is no offense that our neighbors have done against us. Because if you've known your friend, we'll just even say your best friend, you know, for seven years, and they've been sitting against you constantly for those seven years. Well, you're 25 years old. You've been sitting against God for 25 years. So your neighbor, at least on that aspect, is really behind the curve by, you know, seven years. So we should always be forgiving our neighbors of their sins, forgiving from the heart, and also being able to have true joy and being able to have that weighted, lifted off our shoulders. And last but not least, are there any benefits for us to be forgiving, to be able to forgive our neighbors of their sins? Of course, there is the greatest joy on being able to know God and be able to have his joy and peace to be able to walk in his commandments for his commandments are not burdensome. And as he calls us to do is to forgive our neighbors of their sins and confess our sins to him. But I would say another one that a lot of people unfortunately rob themselves of, of this great benefit is that when you do truly forgive your neighbor of their sins as God's forgiven you, you're able to actually live your life freely. You're not, you're not living enslaved to the bitterness always worrying what your neighbor's doing, how they're not going to be doing this or doing that, but you're able to let it go and move on and actually keep your eyes on Christ. That is such a freeing aspect. A comparison to like myself, many times that I've had a hard time forgiving my neighbors and I was not joyful, but by God's grace, when we're able to forgive our neighbors of their sins, it brings us to a greater time of joy. And that is all for today. Thank you. Any questions, comments, concerns? Steve? Now clarify for me. Are you saying that uh, with, with forgiveness that we should not respect, I mean, not respect, expect any restitution? Like in the, in the case of our laptop or hey, yeah. somebody stole our car. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Uh, yeah, definitely you know, so. A restitution is really in the, in the case of stealing things and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right. Now, if somebody was to break your stuff, I mean, obviously, I don't, to preface it, to qualify it, yeah. a lot of times we buy warranties on things mm-hmm. like, right. like a Apple. And I mean, if you had that, easy. Hey, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I might have to pay 25 bucks or whatever <laughs> to get a new one, but yeah. hey, easy peasy, dude. But should, should we expect people to replace those things that they broke? Yeah. Great question. So if someone breaks our items or steals our car, should we expect for them to be able to pay back? what they have essentially deprived us of. Uh, Well, like I said, I would say, you know, even God's law does institute that. If you've stolen from your neighbor, you're called to repay back, not just what you stole from them, but to even give them more than what they originally had before. So you're called and you have the rights and ability to be able to ask for them to pay back what you owe. Specifically, what I was referring to is the fact that your forgiveness is contingent on what they do. God does not forgive us in that manner. He forgives us freely and fully. Now, like, you know, even the apostles would talk about, you know, when talking about working hard, working for your own food, he would say, hey, you guys should all work for your own food. Even though I could ask you guys to give me food, I chose instead to be able to work day and night. So I would say when having such a good understanding of the Lord's forgiveness towards us, there, I would say, it would be often a time to be able to show in this moment the gospel message, you know, to your neighbor, like, hey, I could ask you to pay me this stuff back, 
But you know what? The Lord has been merciful to me and he's worked in me to actually fully forgive you of your debt. That's exactly what Jesus talks about in each of his parables. They had an account, but instead of requiring them to pay that account, he chose to forgive them of their debt. So I would say you can't have the right. You're not wrong. You're not in sin to ask for it. But I would really have you reflect on your motives on why you're doing it, especially in the realm of forgiving. When you pray that prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So are you able to still pray that and be honest with it? Or are you like, ah, okay, not, not like yesterday. Don't forgive me as I, you know, forgive my neighbor their debts yesterday. So good question. In rough part of town. Like yeah. One of the things that really rubbed them the wrong way was like, well, now that I'm a Christian, I gotta be this punk who mm-hmm. has people walk all over me, right? So, no, you can ask for restitution. Yeah. But you can't enforce it. Mm. You know, and then there's even other aspects of what if someone doesn't take from you. What about someone commits adultery and your wife cheats on you? Mm-hmm. You know, there are guys that uh, that I know that have had that happen to them, and they're just like, well, you know, it talks about the, the husband in Proverbs whose fury you're not going to be able to stop, right? Mm-hmm. And But I think vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Like, yeah. I will repay. So forgiveness is not just about material things. Obviously, yeah. our wife's not our material. She's a, our flesh. Right. So I think that, you know, the forgiveness aspect of it is... We can't ask for restitution. We should expect restitution, but our forgiveness should not be contingent upon whether yeah. they can pay us or not. And the same thing should be said with anything in this world. Mm-hmm. We're too tidy that we're putting it above God right. in any sense. So it's liberating, yeah. you know, in one sense. But it's also very difficult. That's why forgiveness, I believe, just like what the forgiveness we receive is supernatural. Mm-hmm. For us to forgive others, yeah. you know, I've had some rough beefs with people, even as a believer, where people would burn me up a lot mm-hmm. of money, and I'm just like, yeah, I'd like to bust your head to the fat right now, but, uh, you know, yeah. that's not how we're supposed to be as Christians. You yep. know, we need God to give us that mercy. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Uh, what was your name in the back? Fred. Greg. No, Fred. Oh, Fred? Yeah, close enough. Fred. <laughs> Greg's over there. <laughs> hey, Greg. <laughs> yes. No, I think uh, the best illustration of that, because there's different levels. I mean, obviously, we know the, uh, the, the story about the, uh, the guy who gets forgiven, uh, you know, the equivalent of millions of dollars, and then he goes to the guy that owes him the equivalent of 50 and throws mm-hmm. him in jail. Yep. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I've had people that I've lent money to that um, they didn't pay me back. And, uh, you know, after a while, I mean, I, I think you just have to, like John said, maybe just let it go and... Uh, and just forgive them. And because the thing is, if they don't care, they know they're not going to pay you back. Yeah. You know, they demonstrated that. And if you keep harping on it, who's it hurting? Mm-hmm. Whose health is it hurting? Yep. I mean, it's you if you're gone, you know, just if it's eating you and you're finding some sort of revenge or, you know, you're just angry, you know, and you just let it go. And uh, you know what? The only thing it is, is when they come asking you for more money, you say, I'll have, be happy to do that when you pay me the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because yeah. uh, I, I think with. Um, there's that saying that when it comes to forgiveness, 
uh, I think it's like eating rat poison mm-hmm. expecting the other person to die. Yep. Yeah, well said. Uh, yeah, oftentimes, you know, as you uh, well speak on, that's exactly what I was talking about in my message, that when you don't end up forgiving your neighbor, it's allowing bitterness to actually grow up in your heart. And in May, if you leave it unchecked, will actually probably lead you to abandon your faith altogether. Well, the other thing, too, is also from a, you know, it's amazing how God works even within our health. There's been studies where people who take that anger towards mm-hmm. other people because they, they feel they're owed something, then their health is the one who is deteriorating. Yep. You know. Yeah, well said. Steve? I did want to say also that I, I, I appreciated the fact how you mentioned um, to be specific, right? I know Nick yeah. even actually mentioned yeah. that earlier in the message today. And, you know, I think that the hard part about it, right, like, you know how you mentioned, yeah, well, you know, like, well, I know I failed as a husband generally somewhere, right? Yeah. And, and that may be true, mm-hmm. right? We look at those things, right? It's more than likely, it's more than yeah. likely true, right? Probably, definitely. Right. But... I think the fact that, like you said, when we look at the specifics, that takes some introspection, right? It mm-hmm. takes us thinking about the things that we've done wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, because, yeah, we know we've done things wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So we can just generally say it, but it's not very thoughtful. It's like, yeah, I, I know that I've done wrong, but to think about specifics sometimes. Because sometimes, you know, I, I'll admit even for myself, right? I'm tired of mine. I'm running. I'm going all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. Take time and think about the specifics. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. Right. And not not just because I want to avoid thinking about those oh, things, yeah. but just that that effort. Yeah. Right. But that effort, like you say, if you think about those specifics, like the example you gave with your wife, if you begin to think about those specifics as opposed to just saying, "Yeah, I haven't been a great husband. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try better." It's like, no, I haven't been listening. Yeah. I've been short fused with him. And then you can actually mm-hmm. work on things as opposed yeah. to, you know, just generally, uh, I'm going to try harder. Yeah. Yeah, definitely so. And I know uh, when I would, I got you, Greg. And I know uh, definitely so, like I said, in my own, uh, you know, marriage with that example I gave, when she did tell me that, I'm like, well, what's the issue? Why don't you just accept my apology? It's, it's a good thing I'm acknowledging I'm not a good husband. And then I guess it kind of came around to actually go through this thing. So, oh, well, I guess that makes sense of why she uh, wasn't satisfied with that. And it, like I said, even makes a specific difference when I am apologizing for those things. And I do it the next day. I'm like, man, oh, I, f- I feel bad. Um, and like I said, that's and when Nick said it, I was like, that's a good point. I should add that to my notes. I didn't originally have that. So when he talked, I was like, that's a good point on how to confess for my sins. And so, you know, it's God's providence they're working you know, in my own message. Greg and then John. Yeah, you know, that, I was going to mention that that's the one that hit me the most was that being very specific about our prayers, right? Yeah. Just in general. I think the sanctification of a believer sometimes can be very slow, right? When we mm-hmm. talk about forgiveness, when we talk about being specific with what we've done. I mean, how many times have we literally lied to ourselves, right? We know what we've done. Yeah. And we'll just flat out lie to ourselves and be like, eh, and kind of just blow it off, right? So our sanctification can be really slow at times. And then, but I think as you grow more in the Lord, you begin to understand that forgiveness doesn't mm-hmm. be that owes you something more. It won't. It shouldn't affect you as much, right? Because you're growing in yeah. the Lord. Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, I 
I listened to a guy talk about, uh, I think it was the owner of the Cowboys. He's so old. He was like, yeah, what's he going to do? He's going to have a, you know, he's a U-Haul trailer with all that money attached to his, you know, his, uh, when he's buried. Yeah. He's not, right? You can't take it with you. So, you know, do your best with God has given you. Forgive. Because how many times have I done something wrong? You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's no reason for it. But yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, definitely so. And I mean, even having a being a brand new parent, you know, with my uh, one year old and another child on the way, you see that there are a lot of lessons that, you know, I'm always trying to teach Phoenix, but I can't start off with the advanced stuff. And the more, you know, intricate details, we got to start with the basics, ABCs, you know, no patient share. So even to also in our in forgiveness, that it's a growing process, it's a learning process. You're not expected, even though we may know what we ought to do. Finding how to do it, like I said, it may be a little bit uh, hard for us today, but that's why we're called to have faith like Abraham and grow through our sanctification over time. And we will come closer and closer to emulating the forgiveness that the Lord has given us. So, John? judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged, right? So, if we're lying to ourselves about things, kind of reminds me of what Nick said in his message earlier, about when people say, I need to forgive myself. No. You need God to forgive <laughs> you. know, you're not sinning against yourself, but like, you can't make yourself accountable, like, culpable for sins, you know, like, like it's God that's looking mm-hmm. you need his forgiveness, right? So if we're lying to ourselves, there's no no doubt we're lying to God also, right? So we need to judge ourselves properly. Right. First thing I was going to say. And then um, just a few just uh, constructive points I think I was going to say. Um, when we make, I think you had said earlier, about the forgiveness aspect, when someone shows genuine repentance, were you saying that... Uh, we need to be ready to forgive as soon as possible when they repent, is what you were saying? Yeah, but I'm try- I was trying to make a distinction between what we would call crocodile tears and actual genuine, like, they're actually sorry for it. Yeah, because I would actually push back on that a little bit, and I'll tell you why. If we are going to wait for someone to show repentance before we forgive, that goes falls into what Fred is saying, that we're going to hold on to that. Like, we're not God. Like yeah. God is the one that desires and obviously leads us to repentance, right? So God can hold things against us and even chastise us when we're in sin. Whereas when someone else sins against us, you know, I understand the reconciliation will come mm-hmm. when that person repents. Yeah. But in our hearts and before God, we are to confess that we have... We would like God to give a redress. We would like yeah. to see this made right. But we're also to forgive that person mm-hmm. in our hearts and not hold on to it until they repent. Yeah, no, because, of course. Yeah, because if we do that, then we're actually playing God. Oh, of course. You know, we got to be really careful with that. So I'm going to make a, a clarification on that. Was, you had to respond to that real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, that's so why I was trying to make sure I specified in my message was that actual distinction that I was talking about being ready to forgive on the reconciliation aspect, but not letting the bitterness to grow in you and that you yourself have already let it go. 
But for you to let it go and immediately go to them when they're not even sorry for what they did, you should hold off on that aspect, but you've already let it go. Right, that's Yeah, that's what I was trying to make sure I said. And, you know, thank you for that anyways. Right. Yeah, for sure. About the earlier part, about making promises to God, we definitely, um, that part was just a little bit, I think we have to be careful because when we are confessing our sins to God, we're attaching our promises of what we're going to do better. We're almost offering a sense of atonement to God. Mm-hmm. So when we're asking him to cleanse us, you know, like First John 1 says, if we confess our sins, mm-hmm. he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. It's one thing if we ask God, Lord, work in me so that I may grow and repent of this, so I won't have to keep coming back to the throne of grace, right? But it's another thing if we start attaching, I'll do better, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. And I don't think you were saying that. I just want to clarify because I know some people, including myself, I mean, when I first got saved, coming out of that Roman background, it was like, you know, adding these addendums mm-hmm. to making, like you had said, making promises to God. I want to clarify you didn't mean like that versus um, asking God to work in you. I just wanted to make sure you meant the one and not the other. Yeah, I don't particularly remember specifically talking about it. Uh, I probably did, and it just probably came out the wrong way. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't believe that, um, like, we shouldn't... Uh, I agree with you on that whole aspect on, you know, when we do confess, we don't say, I'll do better next time, Lord, so just please forgive me. Right. I was just more so saying on that area, if I was to say on that area, is that when we do pray, is asking God for God and his strength to be able to give us the ability to forgive. And that oftentimes we do fall into the trap of saying, well, I failed. Okay, well, I guess I got to pull myself by bootstraps. That's why I specified in my message that we have these aspects. I'm telling us how to do it, but it's by God's grace and strength that we're able to forgive as we should. So when I was talking about all these aspects of what we say we do, it's more so the means that I was talking about um, in that aspect. So uh, I may have said it. Um, If I did say it, I obviously didn't mean that. Appreciate catching that. But yeah, definitely, we don't want to be able to do as, uh, you know, we Roman Catholicists would teach on adding, as you said, these addendums. Say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do better. I'll promise I'll do A, B, and C. Because we don't, we don't even keep our own promises. So we're already setting ourselves up for failure at that point. And it's amazing. Yeah. We've never even been in a Roman Catholic church or something like that. Mm-hmm. We don't need Rome to make us heretics. We're already yeah. heretics with our Christ. Yep. Right. In our flesh. Amen. You know, we do all kinds of things. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think it was Spurgeon. Black people out, right? so <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Cool. Any anything else from anyone? Cool. Thank you guys. See you for the next time.